Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Booboo was the barber's nickname, and his face lit up when I mentioned his former customer. He was quiet and didn't talk much, he told me. But he did tell me he was a writer, and he said that if his health improved, for his sight was very bad, he would write a book about this area. But he never did that, did he? He didn't because not long after James Joyce and his wife Nora left the small French village of saint geron le puy some 20 kilometres northeast of Vichy, he was hospitalised in Zurich and died. Boubou told me how he used to give Joyce a shave every morning at around 10 o'clock. Just 15 minutes and he was gone and he always brought his own razor, he told me. The barber was one of a handful of people who remembered the Irish writer when I visited the village as a student journalist back in 1986. The occasion was the unveiling of a plaque by the writer's grandson Stephen and his wife Solange. The local band played the French and Irish national anthems outside a small grey two-storey house in Rue Marichal Foch and it seemed as if the whole village, well, several hundred of a population of around a thousand anyway, had turned out for the occasion. Not one but two mayors of saint geron le puy and of Vichy greeted the Joyce couple, along with the then Irish ambassador Brendan Dillon, who paid warm tributes to Madame Odette Bernard, president of the local cultural association, for pulling it all off. She admitted that she knew little about this man Joyce until the previous year, when two Irish teachers, Pauline O'Callaghan of Castleknock in Dublin and her husband Jim looked her up. Pauline had been taking a course in Vichy and had read about the village in Joyce's biography, Madame Bernard remembered. In my case, Stephen Joyce had urged me to travel from Paris. He had such fond memories of saint geron le puy having been sent there to continue his education on the outbreak of the Second World War. Family friend Maria Jolas had moved her bilingual school there from Neuilly in Paris, so Stephen remembered classes in a chateau, surrounded by birds and animals and open fields. That was 1939, the same year that Finnegan's Wake was published. Jolas invited the rest of the family down that Christmas, and Joyce, Nora and their son Giorgio, Stephen's dad, arrived on Christmas Eve. At the time, Joyce was very preoccupied with the condition and safety of his daughter Lucia, who had been hospitalised in Brittany. The Joyce family stayed on, with visitors over the coming months including not only Samuel Beckett, but also Paul Leon, with whom Joyce prepared a list of misprints that he had found in the first edition of Finnegan's Wake. It was, as Stephen recalled, a fearful time, much of which he was oblivious to as a small boy, but his grandparents would listen to the news reports on Maria Jolas's radio. By April 1940, Denmark, Belgium and the Netherlands had been occupied by the Germans. Paris fell on June the 14th. The Joyces applied for entry to Switzerland, with James writing constant letters. But the Swiss authorities were looking for a substantial financial guarantee and initially thought Joyce was Jewish, like his Ulysses character, Leopold Bloom. In December 1940, the family finally left France for Zurich. But a month later, Joyce had been taken ill and died. 
Stephen and Solange Joyce maintained the link with Saint-Jérôme-le-Puy. The couple donated books to the library, which was named Anna Livia Pluribel, and there's a Joyce Museum and Square, and the Friends of James Joyce host an annual Jour du Lys, Ulysses Day. When the centenary of the publication of Ulysses is marked in Paris from February 2nd, with many events planned by the team at the Centre Cultural Irlandais over the next few months, children from saint jérôme le puy will also play their part. They will arrive in the capital by train with the association's director Marion Byrne bearing birthday cards made in the local primary school and two cakes in the shape of two books, Ulysses of course, made by the daughter of their local chocolatier. Stephen Joyce, who died in January 2020, is remembered as a fearsome guardian of the Joyce estate. However, that involvement of children is something that would touch his heart. Before I travelled to saint jérôme le puy all those years back, he gave me a signed copy of one of his most treasured titles, bearing his granddad's name. It wasn't Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake. It was a Gallimard edition of Le Chat et le Diable, The Cat and the Devil, the story which Joyce, known to his grandson as Nono, wrote for his dear Stevie on August the 10th, 1936. The tale Nono told him was of the town of Beaugency, divided by the Loire, but with no bridge across the wide river. The devil offered to build one and said that the only charge would be that the first person who crosses the bridge is mine. D'accord, said the mayor, dressed in purple robes with a large chain, who is named Alfie Byrne, after his famous Dublin counterpart. As the story goes, Mayor Byrne outwitted the devil by taking advantage of his fondness for cats. In a postscript to Stevie, Nono explained that the devil spoke for the most part in his own devilish language. However, when he got very mad, Joyce said, Le Diable was well able to speak very bad French in a very strong Dublin accent. Bridget or Biddy was a name most associated with Irish domestic servants in 19th and early 20th century America, whether or not it was their real name. Stereotyped as incompetent and liable to cause havoc in the middle class homes where they were employed, they were the butt of music hall jokes and cartoons and subject to anti-Catholic and racial prejudice. In a long article entitled The Servant Girl Problem, Published in the Boston Transcript in 1874, the well-known author Louisa May Alcott of Little Women fame lamented that For several years Irish incapables have reigned in our kitchen and general discomfort has pervaded the house. Her most recent Irish serving girl, she went on, was an unusually intelligent person, but the faults of her race seemed to be unconquerable and the winter had been a most trying one all around. My first edict was, Biddy must go. You won't get anyone else, Mum, so early in the season, said Biddy. No Irish need apply, 
was my answer to the half dozen girls who, despite Biddy's prophecy, did come to take the place. Whatever about the unconquerable faults of their race, more Irish women than men emigrated in the 19th and early 20th century. Unlike most other emigrants, they didn't usually travel in family groups, but made the journey alone or with a sister or other relative. And at an average age of 21, they were significantly younger than other emigrants. For most Irish women, domestic service was the preferred employment choice. It was relatively well paid and, as living expenses were few, you could save some money. Despite the prejudice, many of the Irish Bridgets managed to pull themselves out of poverty and prosper in their adopted homes. My grandmother, Annie Hughes, was one such woman. One of a family of nine girls and two boys brought up on a small tenant farm outside Tume, County Galway. Annie was just 16 and her sister Ella 21 when they set out on their great adventure. I found Annie's name on the Ellis Island website and discovered that she arrived on the 17th of May 1893 aboard the Ancoria, which sailed from Glasgow. It's hard to imagine two young country girls who'd never been in a big city before making such a journey alone, first to Glasgow and then on the long sea voyage. But, as a cousin explained to me, they would have had no choice. They had no money and not a lot of education. There were no jobs and they had no prospect of marrying a farmer without a fortune or dowry, which was about £100 in the late 1890s. £100 was literally a fortune then for the daughters of West of Ireland tenant farmers. In New York, they were met by their aunt who lived in Brooklyn and who'd arranged jobs for them in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. During her time in New York, Annie rose from kitchen maid to the position of cook for a wealthy Irish-American family who had one home on Lexington Avenue and another in Palm Beach, Florida, then a newly developed resort. Evidently a far cry from the Irish incapables, as described by Louisa May Alcott, Annie and Ella prospered and by 1907 had saved enough money to return to Ireland on holiday after 14 years in America. They stayed in Salt Hill, Galway, then, as now, a seaside resort. I imagine the two tall, good-looking sisters, now in their thirties, cutting a dash with their American clothes, possibly American accents too, and probably, most important of all, their financial independence. During that fateful holiday, Annie went to visit a matchmaker and was introduced to my grandfather, a shopkeeper. They walked out by Loch Corrib, and when they returned, it was all settled, goes the story, passed on by my mother. A postcard from my grandfather, Michael McDonough, to Annie, miraculously survives. The nearest thing to a love letter, it's addressed to Miss A. Hughes, Salt Hill. On the front, there is a coloured picture of the Gap of Dunlow Killarney, with the barefooted Colleen, Kate Carney, in traditional dress. And on the back, Michael has written. Akushla. Please accept this album and cards as a small token of the esteem which a slight acquaintance has some way strangely developed and which I sincerely hope our next meeting will cement. 
with kind regards, M. MacD. Despite urgent letters from her former employer, Mrs. O'Neill, pleading with her to return, Annie never went back to New York. She accepted Michael's marriage proposal and they were married that November in Berkeley Road Church, Dublin. I'm a simple Irish girl and I'm looking for a place. I felt the grip of poverty, but sure that's no disgrace. It will be long before I get one, though indeed it's hard I try. For I read in each advertisement, no Irish need apply. Alas for my poor country, which I never will deny. How they insult us when they'll write It was Sir Christopher Wren the architect of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, who is associated with the immortal words, see Monumentum Requiris Circumspice. If you seek a monument, look around, with reference to his burial place. The epitaph is a reminder of the important function of buildings in our cities, how they perform as public symbols, representative of people or events in the past. With Wren's inscription still in my mind, I recently made a visit to a museum with a difference. All the artefacts were around 50 years old, a world apart from the traditional repository with age-old objects on display. A guide offered me the use of a handheld device which would provide me with a self-guided tour, but I declined her offer. I was all too familiar with the exhibits and storyboards, including the people and events featured. I was in the Museum of Free Dairy, which was established to commemorate the events of Sunday, 30th of January 1972, when British paratroopers gunned down 13 innocent civilians. Shortly before that date, I had resigned from my employment as a history teacher in a boys' secondary school in Cregan, a new estate overlooking the bog side, where most of our students came from. As I walked around, I was struck by the symbolic nature of the artefacts. A green jacket worn by one of the victims with a fatal bullet tear above the right armpit. A roll of bandages used to staunch the blood flow of a dying marcher. The white handkerchief waved aloft by a Catholic curate, Father Edward Daly, as he escorted a dying teenager through the battle zone. And a host of simple personal belongings of others, some of whom were former students of mine. Each object was a personal possession of a victim, one of the 15,000 people who took part in a march organized by the Civil Rights Association. No one can visit this museum and remain unmoved. The high death toll on that dreadful winter's afternoon 50 years ago today, the disproportionate brutality of the army response and the trauma that ensued for years afterwards in the city. It was a painful reminder of an unforgettable period in our recent history that we call the Troubles. After my visit, I crossed Roswell Street to the Bloody Sunday Memorial, a dark, modest sentinel surrounded by black railings with names of the dead engraved in white lettering. I paused briefly, reassured that the tanks and guns of Phil Coulter's anthem were now silent. I continued my walk through the city and a few minutes later reached the Guildhall, which was the actual destination planned by the march organisers, 
13 dead over a matter of a few hundred yards. The guilt hall was later the seat of the Bloody Sunday Inquiry, headed by Lord Savile, which exonerated the victims. The anniversary takes place today, 50 years to the day since the actual Civil Rights March. Appropriately, Guildhall Square will be the venue for a special event, Beyond the Silence, a public act of commemoration incorporating words, music and light. It was in this very square that I heard the apology from the Prime Minister, David Cameron, for the actions of the British Army that day, relayed by loudspeakers direct from Westminster to the citizens of Derry and the barrage of the world's media assembled on the walls opposite. My journey ended as I circled the Guildhall and walked towards the River Foyle. It was a mild winter's afternoon and the late sun illuminated the steel barriers and the grey pillars of the Peace Bridge. It may have been the sudden burst of sunlight that stimulated my thoughts and I moved from a sense of deep sorrow over the past to being inspired by the work of the Bloody Sunday Trust in conflict transformation. If ever there was an appropriate place to recall the oft-quoted lines of a sometime resident of the city, Seamus Heaney, it was there, between the Museum of Freederry and the Peace Bridge, two great symbols of their era, when hope and history rhyme. James Joyce enthused about all things Hellenic, both classical and contemporary. In the foreign cities where he lived, he sought out the company of Greeks, believing them to be the natural inheritors of an ancient legacy. He made serious efforts to learn the language. One of those who taught him modern Greek in Zurich was Paolo Ruggiero, who had spent many years in Greece. He also taught Joyce some Greek songs, one of which, A Lament for First Love, became one of his favourites. Years later, Ruggiero provided Joyce's biographer, Richard Ellman, with the Greek text and an English translation. I walked out all alone on the strand to remember how we had wept together. When I kiss you, you remember it too. Now I love another, a blonde, much prettier than you. But at the bottom of the heart, first love keeps its deep roots. Not very complimentary, it would seem, to the former beloved, but the purpose of the serenade, called Stinacrothalassa, on the seashore, was to recall the unique beauty of first love. In September 1938, Joyce wrote to Ruggiero from Paris with excitement. The other day I heard a French singer on the radio singing your song, but in French. The accompaniment is very beautiful, and the singer sings with exquisite taste. I want to buy the disc, or rather two, one for me and one for you. Two months later he wrote again, I have found the record, it is called Un Rêve, and the house is full of its melody. He also bought one for you and it will be sent to you next Wednesday. You will be delighted with it. Next Thursday on the American Thanksgiving Day, some friends are giving a little supper for me. 
I should like to sing your song in French and also in Greek. Could you let me have the words in time clearly written out with a translation? By the way, the words are different in the French text. There is nothing about the sea in it, no laughter and no blonde, but great sadness. My wife cried when she was listening to it. What the juice is there in music and above all in singing that moves us so deeply? With an interest in Joyce's use of song, I wanted to track down both the Greek and French versions of the song. The University of Tulsa, which holds Richard Elman's archive, kindly sent me the Greek text, written in Latin characters, which Ruggiero had supplied. But I had no idea what the song sounded like. On a visit to the James Joyce Foundation in Zurich, I mentioned this to Fritz Sen, its founder and director. Oh, he said, that must be the old 78 Ruggiero donated to the foundation. We have it in our safe with Joyce's death mask. Fritz allowed me to take this precious, fragile record to an electronic shop on the cobblestone central street in Old Zurich, where the LP was transferred to a digital CD. Two days later, with great anticipation, we inserted the CD into Fritz Sand's computer. Joyce was right. The singer sang with exquisite taste and the accompaniment was beautiful. It had, however, the added accompaniment of what sounded like the full Irish crackling on the morning stove. Such was the surface noise on the 70-year-old record after thousands of revolutions. The title of the song was indeed Un Rêve, A Dream, and the singer was Jean Lumière. The French text was much more romantic, saying that if life were an embrace, the singer would rest forever on his lover's breast. Having discovered the French version of his favourite Greek song, Joyce sang both as his party piece, accompanying himself on guitar, the guitar that is well known from the famous photograph taken in Zurich in 1917. Back in Zurich, Joyce later gifted his guitar to Paul Ruggiero. When the Joyce Tower Museum opened in Sandy Cove in 1966, its first curator, Vivian Veal, now Vivian Igo, travelled to Zurich in search of memorabilia. Fritz Sen asked Ruggiero if he would donate Joyce's guitar. It's easier to beg on behalf of someone else, he remarked. Ruggiero generously donated Joyce's guitar to the museum and he sang for Vivian Joyce's favourite Greek song. In the centuries since the iconic photograph was taken, the guitar had taken many knocks. Plastic filler had been used to repair its many cracks. Rusting metal strings did nothing for its condition. Thanks to the initiative of guitarist John Feely, the instrument was beautifully restored in 2012. This was made possible by generous donations from poet Paul Muldoon, friends of the Joyce Tower and local restaurateur Peter Caviston. At an estimated age of 200 years, the instrument regained its original warm, pleasant sound. In a Zoom event for Bloomsday, organised by the Hellenic community of Ireland during the first lockdown, I referred to Joyce's favourite Greek song, expressing regret that, despite exhaustive research, I hadn't located the original. Within a week, I received an email from a Greek scholar with a link to a 1966 recording. Further searches unearthed a 1917 recording. The song is attributed to the Greek composer Dionysius Labrakas, who spent some time as orchestra conductor in France. He most likely brought the melody with him, but allowed his French lyricist to adapt the song to a more appropriate Gallic sentiment. It's a pleasure indeed to enjoy both renditions.
I first heard the name Anne Frank, or Anne Frank, as we say in Dutch, when I was five or six years old, in my parents' house in the dunes of Bergen aan Zee, a small, isolated village on Holland's windswept North Sea coast. We were sitting in the living room on a quiet afternoon, and for some reason I remember that my mother was talking about varnishing the floorboards in a deep purple colour when the doorbell rang. My father answered the door and brought in a tall and somewhat sombre-looking stranger. I had no idea who he was, but later I was told that it was a man called Otto Frank who had come all the way from Switzerland to visit us. He went with my father to his study. Sometime later they emerged and my father was crying. I'd never seen him cry before, so it made a strong and confusing impression on me. Mr. Frank had come to visit my father to give him some letters and papers. They related to my father's sister, my aunt, Saar. I knew that she had been murdered in a German concentration camp, but my parents rarely talked about these matters, or her, as they thought my sister and I were too young to fully understand the tragedies that had taken place in our family. From the adult's conversation, I learned that my aunt Saar had known Mr. Frank's daughter, Anne, in the concentration camp of Bergen-Belsen, where they had both died within days of each other. That's how Anne Frank came into my life. It was years later that I read her diary, written in my native language, Dutch. But I knew she had been born in Germany and had come to Holland with her family, fleeing the Nazi regime. Like many of the Dutch writers and intellectuals of his generation, my father, the poet Maurits Mock, spoke fluent and correct German. Whenever I ventured a sloppy sentence or made a grammatical mistake in the language he worshipped, a tortured frown would appear on his large brow. How painful it must have been that the clipped language of his family's murderers was the same as the one he had learned to admire and love as an innocent Dutch teenager. We never spoke about it. I read the beautiful leather-bound German books by Heine, Goethe, Schiller and many others in our little black and gold painted library. I loved those books with their Gothic script and I loved the smile on my father's face when he discovered our shared joy in the German language. When I came to read Anne Frank's diary, I already understood why she had decided to write in Dutch, the language of the country where she was given refuge and grew up and where eventually, as the world knows, she would go into hiding in an annex behind the house on the Prinsengracht. Then they were betrayed and taken off to the transit camp of Westerbork. Like my aunts and uncles, 
my grandparents, my cousins, all the members of my family, ranging from toddlers to pensioners. After spending a short period there, they were loaded onto the trains heading east to the extermination camps. None of them ever came back. After the war, everyone, including my parents, struggled to get back to life as normal, as if that was possible. Only in his very old age did my father open up about those closest to him, who had been betrayed by their fellow citizens and then murdered in the camps, just like the people who betrayed Anna Frank's place of hiding. A new book has appeared recently, which seems to shed new light, after all this time, on the identity of her betrayer. But in Amsterdam, there are few secrets. There was so much unspoken, but everyone knew what had happened. Everyone knew who had betrayed whom. Already as children we understood that there were shops you didn't set foot in, restaurants you didn't eat in, Families you avoided, people you didn't speak to. It was rarely talked about directly, but somehow we knew. Only once, as a child, did I see my father's anger. We were driving past a busy restaurant, one of the best known in Amsterdam, with the owner's name in fat gold letters on the window. And time stood still. I knew that these were the people who had told the police about my aunt Sire's hiding place. These people were, so to see, still doing well. In Amsterdam, the traffic is dense, and we sit in the car looking at that restaurant. We see eager people in front of their big plates of food. We were all quiet, waiting for the traffic lights to change, the rain to stop, the car to move on. When my father's rage comes out of nowhere, he shakes a white-knuckled fist at the overlit restaurant and shouts through the open car window, Informers! I thought I would read a few extracts from this poem that's called Derry. And it's a, a ballad-like account of a girl growing up here in the town. Uh, the poem begins in 1970, the year I was born. Derry. I was born between the Craigan and the Bogside, to the sounds of crowds and smashing glass, by the river foil with its suicides and riptides, I thought that city was nothing less than the whole and rain-domed universe. A teacher's daughter, I was one of nine faces afloat in the looking glass fixed in the hall, but which was mine, I wasn't ever sure. 
We walked to school linked hand in hand, in twos and threes like paper dolls. I slowly grew to understand the way the grey cathedral cast its shadow on our learning, cool as sunlight crept from east to west. The adult world had tumbled into hell from where it wouldn't find its way for 30 years. The local priest played Elvis tunes and made us pray for starving children and for peace, and lastly, for the king. At mass, we chant hypnotically, Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Sing to St. Columba of his small oak grove, O Derry, mine. We'd crossed the border in our red cortina, stopped at the checkpoint just too long for fractious children, searched by a teenager, drowned in a uniform, cumbered with a gun, who seemed to think we were trouble on the run and not the Von Trapp family singers, <laughs> harmonising every song in rounds to pass the journey quicker. Smoke coiled up from terraces and fog meandered softly down the valley to the Brandywell and the Greyhound races, the ancient walls with their huge graffiti, arms that encircled the old city solidly. Beyond their pale, the Rossville Flats, mad vision of modernity, snarling crossbreeds leashed to rails. A robot under remote control like us commenced its slow acceleration towards a device at number six, home of the moderate politician. Only a hoax for once some boys had made from parcel tape and batteries, gathered on forays to the BSR, the disused electronics factory. My candle flame faltered in a cup. We were stood outside the barracks in a line, chanting in rhythm, calling for a stop to strip searches for the Armagh women. The proof that Jesus was a dairyman, 33 unemployed and living with his mother, the old Joe Graham. While half the town were queuing at the brew, the fortunate others bent to the task of typing out the checks. Boom, we'd jump at another explosion, windows buckling in their frames. At next, you could view the smouldering omission in a row of shops, the missing tooth in a street. Jerry Adams' mouth was out of sync in the goldfish bowl of the TV screen, our dubious link with the world. Each summer, one by one, my sisters upped and crossed the water, armed with a grant from the government, the butler system's final flowers, until my own turn came about. I watched that place grow small before the plane ascended through the cloud, and I could not see it clearly anymore. Thank you. On this morning's programme, we heard Joyce in saint geran le puy by Lorna Siggins, The Irish Bridges by Maureen O'Malley, Bloody Sunday Derry 50 Years Ago Today by Sean Beatty.
And then there was Joyce's favourite Greek song by Fran O'Rourke, followed by The Betrayal of Anne Frank by Judith Mock. And finally, Derry, a poem by Colette Bryce. Music this morning. We began with an excerpt from Saint-Saëns' Dance Macabre, arranged by Ken Edge and played by the Whistleblast Quartet. Then there was No Irish Need Apply, sung by the Cincinnati University Singers. Then following that, The Coolin, played by Clodagh Warnock on fiddle with Jolene McLaughlin on harp, and that was recorded at Sunday Miscellany Live at the Playhouse in Derry, as was Colette Bryce's poem. Then, at the seashore by Anisius Lavrakas, Joyce's favourite Greek song, in a 1917 recording, followed by Jean Lumière's rendition of the same song in French, titled Un Rêve. And then we had Nocturne in C-sharp minor by Chopin, played by Kyung-wa Jung on violin, with Philip Moll on piano. And you might be interested to know that Judith Mock's memoir, The State of Dark, will be published later this year by Lilliput Press. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany. You can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify and Apple Podcasts or just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.